0: Okay, I want to read two passages uh, this morning, but first, um, if you saw the coronation yesterday, and I'm sure many of us did, it's amazing how many things Prince Charles, now King Charles, was given on the way through. You know, swords, scepters, orbs, new clothes, oil dabbed on him, all sorts of things. But one of the worst things that happened early in the service is that the moderator of the Church of Scotland uh, was given a book by the Archbishop of Canterbury, which he handed over to the king. And uh, at that point in the service, you remember he said this, Sir, <coughs> to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God, as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book. Yep, it was the Bible. Mm. The most valuable thing that this world <coughs> affords. Here is wisdom. Here is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. <laughs> and in the explanation of the service on the Church of England site, uh, it says... Uh, the words spoken by the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland sets the word of God above all human laws. This is their law: to accept the gift is for the king to recognise his authority, and to accept that constitutionally there should not be any attempt by human authorities to overrule it, because it is lively or living. It should be studied so that its words may speak into the king's life. Its presentation before any of the regalia reminds us all, as well as the king, that he is called to govern with good conscience in the sight of God. Not all kings and uh, queens that have been crowned in those terms uh, have necessarily gone on to rule the way that the Bible would want them to, but uh, it starts that way. has done since 1689 when William and Mary were crowned, and uh, the Bible has been at the foundation of uh, what British government is supposed to be about <laughs> ever since. Interesting that's still in there. And that uh, reminds us that, uh, that tonight we're looking at that question again. If you come back tonight, can you really believe the Bible is the objection that, that, that we're looking at. Because many people nowadays would say, what's the Bible doing in a service like that anyway? Surely we know that in, in politics and in government and in the affairs of court and so on and so forth, the Bible doesn't really feature too much. And we've been looking. Three key questions about the Bible, and tonight we'll come up with three things you can say when you get into a discussion on the subject. The three ques- questions we were supposed to look at last week were, have some of the words been changed? And we managed to do that. We had to look at the, the history of the great manuscript discoveries of the last hundred years, which have absolutely revolutionized our confidence that you really are reading what was originally written when you pick up the Bible and read it. We never got onto the other two questions, so they're still waiting for tonight. The second one is, who's to say if we've got the right books in there? A few years ago, uh, Dan Brown in his best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, claimed that uh, there were 70 or so Gospels that could have been chosen for the New Testament, and we picked just four of them, and it was obviously a stitch-up job between the the evil Emperor uh, Constantine and the illiterate bishops who were around and couldn't even read the Gospels for themselves in those days. Is that true? Absolutely not. But you need to know the facts, so tonight we'll have a look at who's to say whether we've included the right books, and also, of course, the key question, which is, isn't the Bible full of mistakes anyway? Can you, can you really say it tells the truth? Who killed Goliath? It's a more difficult question you might think. What happened to Judas after uh, the crucifixion? Did he hang himself? Or did he fall over in a field and his go- bowels gush asunder, as the New Testament says in another place? How do you work out? Things seem to contradict one another. Okay, we'll have a look at all of that stuff tonight and uh, see where it goes. Anyway, let's uh, talk about last week before we get onto this week. I know, I know what. We'll, we'll read the Bible first. That's always a good thing to do. Let's start with Mark chapter 4. I want two short readings this morning just to base the whole thing on. And uh, Mark chapter 4 is the point where Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And after it's over, he ends in Mark chapter 4 verse 9 with something he often says at the end of his parables. He says this, Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear let him hear and he finishes when he was alone the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables he told them the secret of the kingdom of god has been given to you but to those on the outside everything is said in parables so that and then he quotes psalm 78 they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding otherwise they might turn and be forgiven and jesus said to them don't you understand this parable how will you understand any parable. The farmer sows the word. Some people like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And he starts explaining what the parable actually means. But he didn't do that to the crowd. He just did it to his disciples and those who hung around and were sticking a bit closer. Okay, we won't worry about that parable this morning. But I did want to read some words from another parable, one that Jesus gave towards the end of his life. And this is a typical example of the way that Jesus used to tell stories. Very short, very brief, but very telling. This is in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 28. And what it says is this. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. And the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will go. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? (laughs) That's enough background to get us started. Last week, uh, you might remember, we were talking about Jesus' ministry. Uh, It's interesting that Jesus was really only on the road preaching and healing and doing the stuff he did for three years out of the 33 years that he lived. And to many people, that's quite surprising. Jesus did all that in just three years. And we said, yep, there were three years basically involved. They've been called the year of obscurity. but We did not know much of what he was doing, but it was in the purple bit down at the bottom in Judea. Uh, and he had a reputation for baptizing people, although it wasn't Jesus that did it. He had disciples who did the baptizing. But Jesus was basically preaching the same message as John the Baptist. It's time to repent. It's time to turn the And the kingdom of God is coming, and that will change everything for and there was a year of public favor when he was up in Galilee most of the time. And here, uh, because of the miracles he was doing, because of the stories he was telling, because of his just refreshing approach to everything, vast crowds started to follow him. For a year, he was very popular. But even in that year, the opposition was growing. And so that in his final year is the year of opposition. And part of that's spent in Galilee. And then he starts that great trek southwards that comes towards the end of his life. When he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and he goes south, knowing that he's facing death and the ultimate price has to be paid so that human beings can be freed from their sins. So that's what happened. And we talked also about what Jesus did. And the, the four main ways in which Jesus seems to have worked during that three year period were first of all through his teaching. We had a look at that last week. Through his storytelling. This is where the parables come in that we've read about already. Through his miracles, and I think we looked at that last week, and the evidence for them, and why Jesus did miracles, also through his team. And you might remember that a few weeks ago, we looked at the team, the disciples, how he chose them, and how he trained them to become uh, his, 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 his uh, uh, resource. So there were these four things going on, but the one we haven't really talked about and focused on so far is that one, the storytelling one. So this morning, we're going to have to look at why did Jesus teach in the way he did? Lots of what he said wasn't understood by everybody. Why did he do it that way? There was a core team that he wanted to understand. He desperately wanted to understand everything. And there was a wider audience who were interested and intrigued, but they couldn't make head nor tail of it. Why did he do it that way? A few years ago, this guy, who's probably the, the, the father of, of gospel music, uh, was singing a song which was well-known everywhere. It's not so well-known now. I'm just showing <coughs> sure my age again. It's called The Outlaw it was a striking story because it was about all of the different things that Jesus actually was in his lifetime. Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed throughout the land with a band of unskilled ruffians and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he'd come from or exactly what he'd done, but they knew it must be something bad that kept him on the run. And the song just goes through the different versions of Jesus that people saw. Some said he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk across the water. He could make the blind to see. That he conjured wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread. And he talked of being born again and raised people from the dead. And it talks about all the different things. And then you get this verse. Some say he was a poet, that he'd stand upon the hill, that his voice could calm an angry crowd and make the waves stand still. That he spoke in many parables that few could understand, but the people sat for hours just to listen to this man. And this is one of the things that we mustn't forget as we look through the life of Jesus this year. He was one of the world's great storytellers too. And he taught nothing to the people, it says, without a parable. He was telling stories all the time. And they'd follow him from all over the place to listen to the stories he told. Great storytellers ta- are often very damaged people. <laughs> you look at some of the people who've written some of the most fascinating books. They're in the greatest screenplays in the world's history, and often they're working out problems they had themselves. Hans Christian Andersen, for instance, greatest uh, teller of fairy tales, perhaps, in the world's history, was somebody who was a very odd individual. (laughs) He didn't get married. In fact, um, he was quite terrified of women most of the time. Uh, He said his story, his famous story, The ugly Duckling, which which, uh, gave him all sorts of fame, was actually about his own childhood. When he was despised and thought ugly, and well, it was pretty ugly, and, 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 and horrible by everybody. And he never got over those days of rejection. He went to stay with Charles Dickens in 1847. Dickens was one of his great heroes as a writer, and Dickens thought Anderson was pretty special as well. But he overstayed his welcome. He was supposed to go for a fortnight, and it was five weeks before he left. And in relief, Charles Dickens put a, a, a sign up on the, uh, the wall of the bedroom saying, um, uh, Christian Anderson stayed in this room for five weeks and the family thought it was ages <laughs> and uh, he wrote to uh, Anderson just once again it was such a cold letter the whole, the whole friendship broke Anderson just didn't understand it and a lot of his stories when you look at them now are talking about the hurts and the pains and the, and the, 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 the difficulty he had in relating to people even worse Roald Dahl <laughs> who my grandchildren think wonderful I uh, didn't tell them the uncensored story of Roald Dahl he was just a horrible individual even his, his, his first wife, Patricia Neal, the actress, used to call him uh, uh, Roald the, the oh, okay, i forgot forgotten what it was. But anyway, uh, it was because I took down on occasion after occasion. He spent all their money. He was imperious. He was demanding. I was reading a letter yesterday that his publisher sent him once, saying, look, you have been so imperious. You treat other people like dirt. You have these dramatic episodes all the time. You ask the impossible. Now you're asking for more money, and you're saying you won't write another book for us unless we give you what you ask for. Well, we've had it. Let's put that the other way around. Unless you start behaving properly, you will never write another book for us. And it said that the staff at this publishers who had to deal with him in New York all stood on their desks and cheered when they knew that that message had been sent. So you can be a great storyteller and charm people and still be a pretty rubbish human being in lots of ways. Jesus was not like that. The thing about his stories was they didn't come from any sense of need in him. There were stories that uh, that just accentuated how much he saw and understood of what was happening around him. How deep into human hearts he could see and understand. And that was what fascinated people. Not that he was two different things, a great spellbinding storyteller whose life didn't really add up. But somebody the rest of whose life backed up everything he was telling them. And uh, it says in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. I did not say anything to them without a parable. So was fulfilled, for it was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So you've got to say, well, why this technique? What is a parable anyway? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word mashal. That's the word that's translated parable in the New Testament. And the Greeks had a word which they used to translate mashal when the New Old Testament was translated into Greek, and it was the word parabole. Uh, I think, aha, this is sounding a bit more like it. And parabole um, tries to say the same thing in Greek that mashal says in Hebrew. What mashal means is a comparison. It's what happens when you take one thing from one part of life and another thing from another part of life and say, look, don't these two things look similar? Can you find points of contact between them? And doesn't this one... Help to explain that one. So it's a story that explains or opens up something else. It's often, uh, parable's often been told called an earthly story with heavenly meaning. And that's not a bad description. You take something from the earth, from normal daily life, and it explains something spiritual that you wouldn't understand otherwise. Parabole, well, that's the same kind of thing. The Greek word comes from two, two bits in, in Greek, para, which means alongside, and boli, which comes from a verb which means to throw. So it's something that's thrown alongside. In other words, you've got this thing that you don't understand, and then somebody throws something alongside it, that's kind of like it but different, and the one explains the other. That's what a parable is supposed to be. And so if you try to define it, Jesus' parables are a bit like this. First of all, the first part of the definition is this. It brings together two very different ideas so you can understand one of them better. Jesus tells a story about a boy who goes to the bad and uh, uh, disrespects his family and his old dad and goes and spends all his money. Then in desperation comes home and finds a loving father. And he uses that to explain what the grace of God looks like, the way God looks on us people who've rebelled who've kicked over the traces who have nothing to expect from them any longer and still find we're in the hands of a loving and forgiving god the one thing explains the answer. also they're kept as general as possible i mean do you remember the name of the town that the prodigal son went to when he wanted to spend his money can you remember the name of the good son written? no you can't because you're not told in fact in the whole of J- jesus parables which are around about 40 i suppose. There is only one name, and that's Lazarus, <laughs> the, 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 the beggar who, who died and went to Abraham's bosom, when the, the rich man who disregarded him for years went to the other place instead. Only one name in all of those parables. And the reason for that is because Jesus wants his stories to be as applicable as possible to all kinds of different situations. Third, a parable is an authoritative ruling. That word mashal, it might be in comparison, but it comes from a Hebrew verb which means to rule, to say what, the way things are. And so a mashal is something that says, this is the way things are. And Jesus is constantly saying this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. I say unto you. The people were amazed, we said last week, because he spoke with authority, not like the scribes. He wasn't telling his story and saying, well, now, I think this might just be a a little picture of something. might be a little bit like what God is doing. It wasn't like that. He was saying, this is how it is. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he was using his stories confidently to explain something that he thought was the absolute truth. Parables, we've said already, are not always immediately understandable either. And lots of people went home from his stories thinking, (laughs) "Well, that was great. That was fantastic. It was a good evening, but didn't understand a word he was saying." (laughs) Great story, intriguing story, a story that lingered in your mind for years afterwards, but not necessarily you understood. Now you might think, oh, come on, pull the other one. Would people really turn up to hear a storyteller tell lots of stories they couldn't understand? But when you think about it, there are lots of those kinds of things going on in the world. Uh, the band Procol Harum, I'm show sure my age again, had a tremendous hit with a song called A Whiter Shade of Hail a few years ago. I remember the first time I heard that, she skipped the light fandango, did cartwheels across the floor, uh, I was feeling kind of seasick. The band cried out for more. I thought, what is this song about? It wasn't until later when the mirror told its tale that her face at first just ghostly turned a whiter shade of pale. It means absolutely nothing. It was just words and images stuck together. But it was fascinating. It's become one of the great anthems of all time. People still play it on radio stations for oldies like me all the time. And uh, more than that, my, my, my... my grandchild, Ella, has just been in a musical at school called We Rock You, which is based on the greatest song that the police ever wrote. Uh, not the police, Queen, sorry. <laughs> dear me on the coronation weekend as well. Yeah, uh, uh, called Bohemian Rhapsody. What on earth is Bohemian Rhapsody about? It goes on for hours, well, minutes, and uh, they managed to base a whole musical on the thing, and it was okay. But uh, they didn't get everything out of the song that you could have got out of it, and it didn't make sense anyway. And uh, my granddaughter loved the whole thing, but she's very confused about it. And when you look at the story, if you look on the internet, Bohemian Rhapsody, meaning, put that into Google, you'll get a million different interpretations. Freddie Mercury himself said, uh, (coughs) it's a good song, but I have no idea what's about (laughs) it. And uh, Brian May said, I think it's best just to leave the question hanging in the air. (laughs) And yet it's one of the great hits of all time, isn't it? And so people can be fascinated by something that's just beyond their understanding. And I think for a lot of Jesus' audience, that's the way the, the parables were to start with. Not always immediately under the, you know, but with a definite meaning. That's the important thing. What tantalized people was they knew it, it meant something. And so they kept on puzzling it through in their brains. It's not like, uh, you know, in, in Zen Buddhism, they have these things called koans. Which questions which are pretty illogical. They don't really have an answer, but you're supposed to meditate on them, and it helps you understand how uh, pathetic the questions are that you normally ask. Things like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? If a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, does it still make a sound? Or my wife's favourite, if a man makes a statement when his wife is out at the shops, is he still wrong? No. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, all of those kind of things uh, have no meaning. There is no answer to them. They're just meaningless questions to make your brain go and whir around a little bit faster. The parables are not like that. There is a meaning. There is something. Them, and that's why people were fascinated by them. The parables too could be long or could be short. Some of them are pretty extended stories, aren't they? Um, the Good Samaritan, uh, the prodigal son. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. All of those ones. Are fairly developed stories. But some of them come very short. For instance, here's a parable just that, that comes before the passage that we read um, in, in Mark this morning. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Thank you and good night. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, that's it? What does she do with the dough? But he's already said all he needs to. You start thinking about it. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. I wouldn't have thought of that to start with. What does yeast do? Well, it gets mixed right in with the, the, the flour and stuff, doesn't it? And it creates an effect because the bread starts to rise. And another thing about my wife is she's got a bread maker that she loves using. And it's, it's, it's always 50-50 as to whether the, the bread is going to rise and uh, we're going to have a decent week or whether it's going to be another disaster and she's going to r- go around taking it out on me for the next couple of days. <laughs> And you just cannot tell. And if when you put the yeast in there, that's the agent that's supposed to make it rise. And it takes about three hours to make and She's constantly looking through. The, I think it's rising. Oh, it's a full shape. Oh, I'm not so sure about this one. And you know, But that's what yeast is supposed to do, isn't it? It changes what was just a lump of stuff into something that's light and airy and fresh and nice to, to, to eat. And most of the time, to be fair, she gets it the way it would be. But... Um, uh, you start thinking about that and think, Well, the kingdom of heaven then is somehow mixed in with this world and making a difference in this world. Then you think, Well, hang on it, yeast through the Bible is usually an evil thing as well. So what's it talking about? Is it talking about the good and the bad being mixed up together so that the kingdom of God is here but we can't see it around us? It's an invisible spiritual kingdom. And, and so you start asking all sorts of questions and you can go on for hours and hours and some of your interpretations will be right and some will be wrong. But, you know, that, those few words are enough to start your mind spinning off. That's what Jesus is trying to do in his parables. Now, I just want to talk before we finish this morning about what the parables show you. Um, and three things I want to highlight. First of all, the parables show what Jesus noticed, what kind of stories does he tell, who features in them, what happens in them. It gives you an insight into the way that Jesus' mind worked and what he saw happening around him. Second, what Jesus intended. Why tell stories that nobody understands at the time? Wouldn't have been much more effective. him just to go in and say say plainly hey hey! i am the son of god i've come down from heaven i'm going to forgive your sins i'm going to die on the cross i'm going to rise again and you can all repent and believe in me in fact you can become part of the kingdom of god this morning if you just sign on the sheet the front while the organ plays why didn't you just make it as straightforward as that why this roundabout thing with parables and stuff what was he trying to do and then third what jesus highlighted what were the great themes of Jesus' parables? What are these stories actually trying to teach? What was he getting across? So, very quickly, let's look at those three things. First of all, what did Jesus notice? And you look at the parables and you see it's all about ordinary life, isn't it? You think of things like the sower sowing his seed in the ground, the good Samaritan rescuing somebody who's been attacked by bandits. You think of the man who discovers that there's a treasure hidden in a field. And without telling anybody, in a fairly rascally evil kind of way, he goes and buys the field for a knockdown price so he's rich for the rest of his days. You get the story about the Pharisee and the publican and how this guy who thinks he's so righteous and so perfect and so blessed by God is so deluded he can't see the simple truth about himself. You see the story of uh, the, the uh, shepherd leaving 99 sheep at home just to go out and save one who's out in the wilderness. What a crazy thing to do. But that's how shepherds behaved. And Jesus' audience knew that. So what's, what can you say from all of that sort of stuff? And of course that's only five out of the 40 or so uh, parables that there are. I think the first thing you can say is Jesus cared about ordinary people and their lives. These stories are not about battles and heroes and things like that. I mean, Jesus could have talked about all sorts of things, couldn't he? He obviously read the Old Testament very well, so he didn't have to invent stories of his own. He could just have recounted the great stories of the past, and people would still have been spellbound because he was just a great storyteller. Or he could have gone to the other extreme. He'd come down from heaven after all. He could have told him what life was like in heaven, what the angels have for breakfast. A few things about Gabriel, a few things about Michael. He doesn't tell heavenly stories either. Instead, he focuses on the life around him, the things he'd see happening in Galilee, and things like a farmer sowing the seed and finding a very poor return on it. That's the kind of thing he talks about. Second, he saw the good in those that others simply wrote off. And some of his most controversial parables are about people who were disrespected by everybody else. The one person who helps the wounded traveler by the road is a Samaritan. Oh, that must have gone down big <laughs> with the Jewish audience. They hated the Samaritans. but Jesus saw the good in those whom others simply wrote, wrote off. Furthermore, you know, though, he wasn't just scary eyed about people. He knew that people could be greedy and selfish. And cheating everybody by buying a field for way below the price it should have been was not the thing you were supposed to do. But he told stories about that kind of thing as well. And he knew how pride could make us deluded. And the Pharisees were big and were respected in Jesus' day, but he chose this figure of a Pharisee going into the temple and praying a very puffed-up kind of prayer to show just how wrong you can be about yourself. And he knew also how much we sometimes need forgiveness. He didn't, clearly. He was the only person in the world who never did anything wrong. But remember, when he was baptized by John, suffer it to be so now, for thus it was with us to fulfill all righteousness. And so he identified with the people he'd come to live among, and he knew that they needed forgiveness. And that, let's face it, is what the story of the 99 is all about. They're safe, they're okay, but the shepherd still goes out looking for the individual sheep that's lost in the wilderness because every single person in the world counts and matters to God. So Jesus was uh, telling stories from ordinary life to show what God was like and to show people how different God was from the way that they usually thought about it. And we'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But when you've looked at that, you've then got to say, well, what did Jesus actually intend by this? Why tell parables? What was the point of doing this? Here's uh, uh, what we read already. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables, and he said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Was Jesus really saying, I don't want them to turn and be forgiven. I mustn't be plain. I must wrap it all up in mysteries because I don't want these people to understand. I want them all to go to hell. that's not true so what was he saying here well well, it wasn't that jesus wanted to keep people in the dark he didn't want them not to understand but it wasn't the time for some of them to understand yet and some of them never would so first for some the parables would all make sense after the resurrection you see jesus didn't want people uh, to uh, be completely in the dark about what he was going to do but nor could he explain it all to them at that particular Oh, I'm going to die, you know, they're going to crucify me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. They would never have understood that stuff. Only those who were living with him, traveling around with him, seeing the real Jesus, seeing what he was really like, were starting to think, this guy is out of the ordinary. This guy is doing something special. He's got to be the Messiah. We can't go to anybody else. He's the one who has the words of eternal life. And they were starting to get a handle on just how you knew Jesus was. For most people, he was just a, a great preacher. They could heal your, your uh, mother-in-law's lumbago if uh, you were seeing him on, on, <laughs> on the right day. Uh, he to- told wonderful stories. Um, you could even get fed if you were in a desert place and there was no food and uh, he had five loaves and two fish to do something with. Um, but uh, they didn't understand what Jesus was all about, and they couldn't have done. So what Jesus does is he goes around showing little time bombs all over the place. Things that niggle in people's minds, that stick in their memories, so that when the resurrection happens and everybody starts talking about it, wow, those time bombs go off, and you find people becoming Christians all of the place thinking, now I understand it. Now I know what those stories were about. And the parables become important and precious to all sorts of people because they suddenly open up their meaning. That's what had to happen. But for other people, sadly, too, the parables would never make sense because they were unwilling to hear that's why jesus says so often he who has ears to hear let him hear because some people will be intrigued by the parables and they'll catch a glimpse of something that might just mean something to them one of these days and might revolutionize the whole of life as far as they're concerned they can't quite put their finger on their finger, it's heading in the right direction and there are other people who just turn away from it and say, ah, no no it's rubbish no but he means absolutely nothing it's just a farrago of words and stuff and uh, they, they, they just reject the meaning and the more they reject it the harder their ears become the less likely they are to listen to what's being said and jesus is just being realistic by saying listen i tell these stories because they start to sort people out <laughs> some people will listen and they gradually their hearts will open up until they come to the point where they're ready to say yes you are the solution you are the king of glory you are the son of god but for some people they'll never actually get there that reminds us about uh, what we've got to do if we want to help people discover Jesus for ourselves, doesn't it? Some people just need an explanation. (laughs) You tell them a story, and it's like a flower opening up. Oh, wow, that is amazing. This is a missing thing I've been missing in my life all these years. And they're just ready for it. And they become Christians very, very quickly. I think, why can't everybody be like that? And there are other people for whom it's a real battle. And Paul wrote in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The reason many people don't respond to the gospel more quickly is because they're in the grip of someone who doesn't want to let them go. And so while we try to share our faith with other people and make sense of it for them, we must always remember that the key weapon we have is prayer. And the most important thing we can do for somebody else is pray for them. Pray that the hold of this world's culture, sin, the flesh, and the devil, will just be released by the power of God so they can start to understand what's really going on in the universe and uh, start to turn to Jesus. One third thing we'll finally talk about is this. What did Jesus highlight? What was the point of his parables? And you can, you can divide them up in all sorts of ways. And scholars have tried down through the centuries. It's very confusing. Somebody uh, put together a book just 10 years ago uh, with uh, 50,000 different approaches to Jesus' Jesus parables. He listed all of the parables, and along some put the different interpretations and ideas that have been put together, different ways of cataloging you know, that have been down through the centuries. And there have been so many. It's very difficult to put them things into a category but i reckon there are probably three major subjects in the parables stories that jesus tells and these are the ones first of all a lot of about the kingdom he was announcing you get a whole burst of them, for instance in matthew chapter 13 if you want to look at that one chapter jesus says again and again the kingdom of heaven is like this the kingdom of heaven like this the kingdom of heaven is like this and clearly an awful lot of what he was doing was explaining god is doing something big right here and now the kingdom of heaven has come very close to you that was his message to And he was saying, listen, the kingdom is there, but it's not the kind of kingdom you think it's going to be. So many people were looking for a political kingdom. Just a few years after Jesus' crucifixion, the Jews stood paying taxes and rebelled against the Roman Empire. And it all ended in misery. Uh, in AD seven, the Roman Emperor marched into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and uh, uh, it's never resurfaced since then. The Jews were looking for A time when they'd be strong enough to rebel, push the invaders out of the country, and build God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus said, yeah, God's kingdom (coughs) is coming on earth, but not right now. God's kingdom is coming invisibly and spiritually. God is gaining territory in people's hearts and minds all over the world and creating a new family, a new nation, people who belong to one another, who will live by different standards who will be answerable to Jesus of everything else in the world. And as God does that, the conditions will be created for the physical kingdom to appear. Yes, it will all happen on earth, right here, one of these days. But right now, you don't have to work. The kingdom has started, and you can be part of it. So he was announcing the kingdom. The second big thing is the status he was claiming. A lot of the parables are about who Jesus actually is. He talks about the son of the the vineyard owner, for instance, who's sent by his father to people who've taken the place for themselves, hijacked the whole enterprise, taken over the world and said, this is ours now, God can go, the vineyard owner can go and do what he wants and take the son of the vineyard owner and they kill him. And Jesus talks in the parables in this veiled way that people didn't totally understand at the time about his closeness to the father. But the way in which he did the Father's will, in which he was not just a wandering prophet from Galilee, but he was somebody who had a relationship with God that nobody else had, but who was inviting all of the others into a relationship with God, a living relationship with God too. And uh, it helped people to understand that. The third thing, I think, as well as all of those, are the choices that he was offering. He was talking about a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of God as well. You see, the God that the Jews believed in must have seemed a pretty mysterious character. They had been through 400 years of political upheaval, ups and downs. Right now, the, the Roman Empire, the biggest empire in the world so far, had taken over their country, and they didn't know what God was doing. or oh, they still believed. But they were becoming aware that there were other peoples in the world who worshiped very, very different gods. In Galilee, where Jesus spent so much of his time preaching, on the fringe of, of uh, the country, there were Romans, there were Greeks, there were all sorts of people wandering in and out, Syrians, all sorts of people with very different worldviews. And the Jews believed firmly in their God and the truth that came uh, from their scriptures. But at the same time, they must have been thinking, this God is hard to understand. And Jesus, as we said last week, started using the word Father about God. Something they weren't used to. God is called a father maybe twice in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it's all over the place because Jesus talks about the fatherhood of God. And uh, um, uh, one uh, scholar has said listen, people talk about the Jesus movement uh, that happened back in the 70s in America, they talk about the Holy Spirit movement, the charismatic movement. The discovery spiritual gifts, all that sort of thing but actually what jesus started in his teaching in galilee was the father movement he made people realize that god was a loving father who wanted to welcome people back home and so he was saying there are two ways you can go there are choices you can make and so many of his parables make people make a choice don't they and that's the key thing i think as we explore the meaning of the parables today and realize we're going to get to the bottom of them because there's always more there than you've seen They help force us again and again to make a choice. Do you remember that parable I read right at the start? With us, I'm going to finish. Two boys, one of them says to his father, yeah, 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 I'll go and help in the vineyard, no problem. But he never actually gets around to it. Another boy says, no, I won't. No chance, I'm not doing what you want. And later he starts feeling bad about it. Oh, okay, fair enough. And he goes and does his father's will anyway. And Jesus says, we're all like the second boy. We all rebel against the will of God. We all want to go our own way. We all want to live our own lives and do things for ourselves. But some of us repent. Some of us turn around. And it's far better to be somebody who's kicked over the traces, got it all wrong, and come back and said, I'm sorry, I am going to serve you anyway, than to be the son who says, oh, I'm doing everything just right, and then never gets on with the job. And so Jesus' parables say, you've got a choice to miss do you want God as your father? Huh. Do you want to see the kingdom come in our life? Uh, do you want to see that things change in such a way that you have a relationship with a father who cares for you and in whose love you feel secure? Then do what he says. Take action. And there you are. Hear the call of the kingdom. Let's just pray. And then you're coming back, Steve, is that right? Let's just pray for a second. Heavenly Father, we've just described really this morning what Jesus did in his parables rather than looking at the challenge of any single one of them. But as we look at the whole thing, we can see why he did it. And we can see how he was working on people's minds. And we pray that you'll give us the same sympathy for people, the same compassion, the same kind of instinctive understanding so that we know how to lead people gently from one point to another until they recognize your reality. And we pray that in our own lives we won't miss the challenge of the parable to do something now, to serve you while we have time, to build on the rock rather than on the sand, and to go the way with our lives that all of your stories point out for us. We ask it for your namesake.